it's incumbent upon us, almost ethically, I, I would frame it through the lens of ethics, to make sure that we are serving students that need us so desperately and that we are giving them degrees that genuinely unlock opportunity for them. Leaders have to take into account those big existential questions. What they are not going to do is be successful by simply trying to find more cuts in their budget or doing it the way they always have been doing it because that's already broken, that's gone, right? Unless you're talking about the elite institutions when they're, they're gonna be fine. If you're talking about the 50 flagship state universities, they're probably gonna generally speaking be fine, but everything else is on the table and we, we need a dramatic change in higher ed. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I have been so looking forward to today's conversation. I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Paul LeBlanc, who serves as president of Southern New Hampshire University. Since 2003, under Paul's leadership, SNU has grown from 2,800 students to over 167,000 learners, which makes it the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. There's so much more that I could say by way of introduction. However, we want to leave as much time as possible for this conversation. So we will include Paul's impressive bio in the show notes. And let me start by welcoming you, Paul, to the Ingenious You community. Well, so thank you for having me. It's so nice to be with you and your listeners. I'm flattered to be asked. Now, typically, we begin by asking uh, our guests about their professional journey. And in your case, there's little in your early life to suggest the kind of career trajectory that you have had. For example, you were born in Canada, where French was your first language, I believe. You immigrated to this country as a child. You grew up in a neighborhood where no one, including your own family, went to college. You didn't have college on your radar initially, and you spent a good portion of your adolescence and young adult years living in poverty. So given all of that, how do you then account for where you are today as president of the largest nonprofit provider, if I read? in the country and particularly what influences or forces uh, do you attribute for your journey? Um, yeah, and I wanna be careful because sometimes I think we all have our the baggage we carry with us. We were, and I did live in a poor family. Um, my dad was a day laborer. My mom uh, worked in a factory till she was 75 actually. Um, but I don't want to pretend that we ever wanted in the kind of ways that so many students want today. Like we we weren't worried about eating, right? We we had we we had a, an intact, loving family. So, um, but but you know, we didn't have very much money, and and I I think um, there's as you said, and it's so I just love the way you framed this. Like there was nothing on paper that would suggest this journey, um, except that. You know, along the way, the thing that you can never sort of predict is the sort of power of people who believe in you, um, who actually help you dream bigger dreams for yourself. And that probably began 
with uh, my mom uh, worked in a factory, but she also cleaned houses on weekends, um, right? Like lots of people, you have multiple jobs. Um, and she would plunk me down in the libraries of these beautiful homes in Western Mass, which I think is still the highest per capita income in the state. And, um, and she would put children's books in my lap. That's how I learned to read English, actually, before going off to school. We were three when we immigrated from kind of a Canadian Appalachia, like dirt poor farming country. And, um, but Mrs. Thompson, a woman whose house she cleaned on Saturdays, took an interest in me and kind of gave me more books. And at some point said to my mother, you know, Paul is you know, such a good reader and, you know, kind of like the praise you might give to anybody's kid. And he was very proud, of course. But then it was, you know, a sixth grade teacher who, and this was probably the lightning bolt conversation, who said to my mother during a parent-teacher conference, Paul could go to college someday. And we didn't know anybody, as you said. And college was for the children of the families whose homes she cleaned. Like in our family, getting a job, you know, everyone worked in the trades. And if you got a job at the state, like a toll booth collector, that was like hitting the lottery. That's a pension and you're not working outside of the elements or sort of working outside. But when Mr. Schlafman, who by the way, went on to become an NBA ref, um, said that to my mother, she kind of held that, right? And all of a sudden she had a bigger dream for her youngest of five and, and kind of wouldn't let go of that. And she didn't know how it worked, right? She didn't know what a FAFSA was, but somewhere along the way, kind of a succession of similar teachers. And I was just, I'm just finished a book manuscript and the first chapters are on aspiration and mattering. Like you, mm -hmm. if you read Hillbilly Elegy, for example, uh, the thing that struck me about a book, which for which I have lots of criticism, I don't like that book, frankly, very much, but, but his grandmother who believed in him and who believed he was bigger than his circumstances, which allowed him to believe that. And the students that I meet who come from poorer back, backgrounds, much poorer and difficult than mine, if they're making their way to a college program, it's often because someone took them under their wing and said, essentially, I believe in you. And as a result, demanded much of them. In other words, that belief in someone has an accountability built into it as well. And I will help you get there. I, I was sat on a um, uh, Institute of, um, of uh, Academy, excuse me, Academy of Sciences and Engineering panel committee with the first woman African-American graduate in aeronautical engineering from MIT. Talk about somebody who overcame amazing odds, right? She was the only woman, one of few at the time the only black woman, one of the few students of color at the time. And it was one professor who refused to let her fail, who like met with her for extra hours. And every time that she felt like, you know, the odds were stacked against her, like cajoled her, encouraged her, but she had to have someone who believed in her. And I think that's that was the thing that changed my path. And then after that, it's everything else that's important, right? Access to high quality, low cost higher ed. I went to a state college. I had teachers there that were still friends of mine. It was a teacher there who, in my senior year, said, so where are you going to graduate school? And I thought, I didn't even thought about graduate school. I was lucky to be graduating, you know? And she, and she couldn't believe that I hadn't already started the process and that the 11th hour, using some connection she had at Boston College, landed me a spot in the master's program. And at the 11th hour, Joe Appleyard, who said the benediction at my inauguration, who was the chair of the program, got me a TA, which made all the difference in my ability to pay for it. And that led to a PhD program and a career. So, you know, on paper, the thing that mattered most were human beings. It's, it's like we, we spend so much time, quite rightly, on designing academic programs and thinking about their attributes and what's included and what's not included in assessment and everything else. But, but at the heart of this is a distinctly human experience and it starts with the ability to dream bigger dreams for yourself. And it's what fuels my commitment to equity and opportunity. It's why SNHU does the kind of does. I always say that the students we're interested in we're interested in the 45% of Americans who say they would struggle to come up with $400 for an unexpected car repair. That's who I need to serve. Because right now they're being left behind and our higher ed system is too broken for them.
that's a really good point to pivot on here in terms of the next question. But but before I do that, I first I want to thank you for for sharing your personal story. And um, as you know, I have worked at Baypath University for quite a quite a while, and I hear that same thing, particularly from our adult women students, many of whom never had higher education on their radar and life got in the way for all kinds of reasons. But time and again, they tell the story of somebody who came along and believed in them and held up the mirror and gave them this, this notion, you know, that yes, they could do this and um, the rest is history. So now speaking about SNU, and I did mention uh, the growth, the incredible growth trajectory of the institution um, from when you first assumed your presidency, how do you make sense of the SNU story? So for example, when you're all by yourself, you know, what do you tell yourself about the reasons for SNU's remarkable success? Well, brilliant leadership, really. I'm all set. No, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I actually was listening. It's funny you say that. I was listening to myself all of my big misses, like my big mistakes, mistakes that in some cases cost us more than a million dollars. I thought, God, I'm so lucky the board didn't fire me this time, this time, this time, or this time. So, and when you said that number, you know, 167,000, I gasped a little, like, oh my God, what have we done? Um, so, what is, you know, what is, what is sort of at the heart of that story? So, I would say, um, Clarity of mission and focus is the first thing. You really have to understand your reason for existence, why people come to you, what they need from you. And while we didn't have the language early on, um, I'm very much influenced. And my great mentor among the people who had an outsized influence on me and SNU is Clay Christensen, um, famous Harvard business, professor, business school professor who died last year. Well, I've known Clay for 40 years. He was a dear friend. But he has a body research called Jobs to be Done Theory. And Jobs to be Done Theory, really, it's there's more to it than what I'm about to say. But at the heart of it is the is the requirement that you go to the root cause. Like, what is the real job that someone comes to you to get done? And, and they, we use that word job kind of in the abstract. So if someone buys, let me give you an easy example. If we sold drills, if we were the Bay Path Drill Company, um, what job would people be asking us to do for them? Is it to supply drills? It's not. The job they need to get done is they need a hole, right? Like you have to think about this for a minute. Like, wait a minute, I, I, I know what product I'm, but my product does a job. It creates a hole. That's the job to be done. So we get really focused on the job that adult learners need us to do for them. And what we sort of realize that there are sort of four Cs that are the principles that still today um, 17 years into this journey that still inform the way we think about our students and what they need. So our students have long been underserved populations for whom it's four C's, for whom cost is critical, right? They're being left behind. Um, cost is one of the great reasons. Convenience. They have lives, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, incredibly busy lives. They're juggling work. They're juggling family um, even if they're a younger learner, they're often working a job to help support a family, you know, their own family, et cetera. So how are they going to squeeze us in? Can we build an educational model that wraps itself around their needs for flexibility, their need for convenient delivery? Um, the third is credential. So can we give them the right credential that makes a meaningful change in their life, that opens up an opportunity? And the fourth is completion time. If they're coming back to us and trying to do this very difficult thing, it's because they have some sense of urgency. Typically, they're stuck. They need to do better. They need to do, be able to do better for them, for their family, for their kids, for themselves. So those four Cs really drove our program design. So we had much more you know, friendly transfer credit policies, and we have a shorter term structure, a whole bunch of things that have become pretty standard now in the industry. But going back to my point about humans, we also landed on our secret sauce, like what we, how we were going to distinguish ourselves. And it's in our sort of efforts around student success that if you think about it, you know, and you're training people who are going to be leaders in various organizations, all organizations have to be really good at three things. 
but all of them typically will also plant their flag, their kind of primary focus on one of the three. So what are the three? You have to be super good at operations. That's not usually higher ed. We're okay at operations, but think Amazon, right? Amazon is the epitome of, you know, unbelievable operational prowess. Look at Prime, right? You can order something today and it's here later today or maybe tomorrow. Uh, just, you know, what they do in operations. You can plant your flag on product. So we spend a lot of time in higher ed on product. A lot of, right, program designs, what program, how is my MBA program different your MBA, what are the outcomes of those programs, how are they priced, um, does it work for you? So product is big. Um, think Apple as the kind of gold standard. So Apple's products are not always technically superior, but their designs are beautiful, right? And they think about product design in a way that has incredibly loyal uh, sort of customers. And then the third is customer. And we would say student in our industry. And that's, you know, think Nordstrom's, right? Extraordinary, or Zappos. Um, their prices aren't lower. They don't even do product design. They carry other people's shoes, but their customer service is extraordinary. Um, so I think a lot of higher ed plants its flag on product. We planted our flag on student. So our, we will go to incredible lengths for students. We track our response times. If someone's got an issue with the help desk, a technology issue, they're trying to get their transfer credits evaluated. We measure all of that. How fast do we respond? What's our student satisfaction rating? What's our net promoter score? Um, students who enroll with us 94 to 95% at any given moment, both current students and recent graduates say that they would enroll with us again if they were doing it over or that they would recommend us to friends, family, and coworker. Like we live by that number. And, and that's a very much a student design. So you take all of those things, those were the attributes of our program. And then we got really, really good at marketing because we had to be able to tell our story and we had to be able to know what was working and what was not working. So we, um, not only built our, our operations around servicing students really well, but we also built analytics that would tell us how to measure that, but also to help us measure our marketing investments. And, and, and all of those things came together to drive growth. And then there's just sheer dumb luck. So <laughs> you take a look at our growth was pretty steady all the way through 2008, 2009, and then the recession hit. And as you know, economic recessions are typically counter-cyclical. When you have higher unemployment, people go back to get finished degrees or get graduate degrees to upskill or reskill or change careers. So uh, we were we had done a lot of work to get to get all of those things I just described to you kind of in place. But 2010 came, and all of a sudden, people were enrolling. And we started marketing more aggressively. So people were like, okay, who's this place? What's this place? Also part of the luck, the for-profits who dominated the online industry, think Phoenix and Corinthian and Kaplan and ITT, they were all back on their heels. The Obama administration was gunning for them. Frontline had done a big story about how bad they were. The New York Times were doing stories about how bad they were. So they were back on their heels. We were in the market. A lot of not-for-profits looked down their nose at online back then. So they didn't compete with us. Like we never worried about other not-for-profits. And students started coming and they kept coming. In 2012, we were the 50th largest not nonprofit provider of degrees. And just three years later, we were number four. And two years later, we were number one. And that three year period was a rocket ride. And turned out we weren't good at it. Like we broke every system we had. Like we didn't understand what it takes to scale. There was the, what is still called the financial aid summer of hell when all, all of our wait times were climbing. So instead of you know, being on the phone for three minutes, people were on the phone for 25 minutes and then had the call cut off. And then they were going on social media and just tearing into us. So we just, it was all hands on deck and we learned a ton. And in comparison, this summer where we had crazy growth, we went from 135,000 to 167,000 in a matter of months. And we were hiring 40 new full-time people every week since March this year. 
but everything worked well. Like we've learned how to scale. The systems held, they were resilient. They were strained, but they were resilient. You wrote a wonderful blog piece a year or so ago entitled In Praise of Mistakes and Humility. And the story you just tell suggests that this is written from personal experience. Um, so I'm, I'm curious uh, what the inspiration was. I mean, obviously some of what you've lived through, but is there a broader uh, takeaway in terms of it? And it's a little unusual for a leader to write a public piece on <laughs> the mistakes, honoring and, and holding up the mistakes and the importance. Yeah, of so I think there are a bunch of things packed into that. And we've had a really more than three years now, we have been trying to shift our leadership culture and it's really tied to that notion that you've identified. So here are the things I think. One, Melissa, you and I have been around long enough to know that we've always learned more from our mistakes than we've learned from our successes. Um, and we often claim too much credit for our successes and we tend to sort of fend off the, uh, the, the sort of accountability around blame sometimes um, around mistakes. But, but mistakes are incredible opportunities to learn. And I felt like I've learned, like, that lesson in scaling was a painful one when we broke everything, but we learned so much that the proof was that we could do it the second time around and be really good at it. Now, if we had broken everything again, that would be a very bad reflection on our ability to work. I like my, old, I have an old friend from this, from Arkansas who says, Paul, there's not a lot of education in the second kick of the mule. Mule kicks it twice. You didn't learn your lesson <laughs> the first time. So, so mistakes are important. Second thing I would say is that we're like healthcare. Higher ed's an expert culture, right? So status and standing um, and opportunity accrue to those people who know the most. We're a hierarchical guild society and you know, full professors know more than associates and than assistant professors. And you know, everything is about how impeccable is your knowledge. That's a terrible culture in terms of allowing people to say, I don't know. And when people say, I don't know, it means they're not learning and they're not learning from each other. And you don't, you don't harness the collaborative power when you know, more, more minds are better than single minds. Um, it's also a less diverse way of operating, right? You don't invite other voices in as readily. So in some ways in that blog post, I was trying to model for all of our leaders that it's okay to say, I don't know. And it's interesting, I, so I'll give an example. We had a senior leader who was really struggling with a, with a, a, a very powerful problem with big implications. And we sat in her backyard and this was my little come to Jesus conversation with her to say, this isn't working. Like you don't, you haven't figured this out. Um, and I was obviously gonna be supportive and say, how can we help? And I had some ideas about that. But before I could say anything, she said, I know what's wrong and I don't know how to fix it. Mm. And, it and we took this big pause and I said, then we're going to help you. Mm. We're gonna get it. I don't know how to fix it either, but let's figure it out together. And she, you could just like, it was like a weight off her shoulders. And she said to me, this is such a relief to say that out loud. And I was like, you could have said that at any time. And my experience is when leaders say they don't know, People don't criticize, people lean in, people want to help, right? And it's more powerful when we can learn together. So I'm very influenced by books like, there's a new book called Unleashed, um, by the, written by the two women who were called in to fix Uber when that whole culture just blew up, if you remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Humanocracy, yes, uh -huh. which is another wonderful book that I give to everybody who works for me that talks about how do we sort of lead differently and empower people who are closer to the work and part, you know, who, who, who are closer to the solutions, that old axiom, those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Um, so we're, we're working really hard at this. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input. 
and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. You've been a president uh, for a while now, two institutions spanning 25 or so years. And I'm, I'm curious, as I hear you describe uh, what you have put in place most recently, to what extent you would have been able to do that when you were just starting out as a president? So I, I guess my question really has to do with how has your leadership style, your approach, uh, your sense of competence, even confidence changed over those years. Um, and, you know, if there's some important leadership lessons, including any regrets or things that, that you oh, would God, do so many. <laughs> so I think when I think about <laughs> leadership, and so first of all, I think leadership begins at every level. So we often say this within the organization, we talk about leadership and leadership development. We don't just mean people who are in positions of power further up the hierarchy. When we have an entry level student advisor who's in her third month of the job, um, but when a student has a particular need and she sort of figures out how to take care of it and fixes it without asking permission, we think that's a moment of leadership courage, right? So. So I think leadership happens at all levels. And, and I learned leadership, you know, by becoming a department chair. But in some ways, leadership began in my childhood, right? I was the guy, I was the kid who organized all of our hockey games. And in the 1970s in Boston, during the heyday of the Boston Bruins, you know, you couldn't find ice time. So it was, I would sort of rent the rink for one o'clock in the morning and persuade a couple of grumpy parents to work out the rides. And I would collect the money from everybody. And I kind of learned organizational skills. But I think management comes before leadership quite often. Um, so, you know, I think of leadership as sort of four boxes on a quadrant. Um, and I'm borrowing from Terry Deal, uh, who was at Vanderbilt for a long time. And, and I think, you know, there is a leadership as we often think about it, which is the ability, and I often call this box, the storyteller in chief role. Leadership as the ability to get in front of your organization, and this is true if you're a department chair or you're a team leader with six people under you, can you articulate the why? Can you tell the story well such that it moves people? Can you plug them into the sense of mission? Um, can you evoke the heroes, the history, the reason, the impact, right? And storytelling is so important to leadership. Um, you can tell stories of great charisma and arm waving, but I know lots of very quiet leaders, but who in their conviction and their ability to really plug into the why inspire their people. So it's not about charisma alone. In fact, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, is kind of skeptical of charismatic leadership. And then there's another box, which is what I would call your sort of managerial aspects of leadership. You got to learn the skills, right? You have to learn how to be a good planner. You have to know what good personnel management, talent management looks like. You have to learn how to do good budgeting. And you're not going to be good at all of those things, and you have to. But you have to know enough about them to know what good looks like. Because in my job, I have to hire smarter than me in every one of those areas. Like I always tell people, I was coaching one of our young leaders who is afraid to hire smarter than herself because she's not confident, right? So she kind of hires players that are just not quite where she is. And I was like, I won't use her. I'll call her Elizabeth not her real name, Elizabeth, you can hire smarter than you. Like if Danielle, who's our HR person, if I know more than about HR than Danielle, SNHU is in real trouble. <laughs> right, Tom heads up IT, 
I have to I have to know enough about IT to hire Tom, but God forbid I know more than Tom because H S and H U is in real trouble. So good managers have to know what they're they have to learn, generally speaking, the broad areas of skills required. They usually are pretty good at some of them. And in all cases, they have to hire smarter than themselves. Then there, there are two other boxes though, are two other quadrants, Melissa, because those two are very visible to the world. I think my people would look at me and they would be able to say, I have enough evidence. I see Paul enough to decide if I think he's a good storyteller leader, storyteller in chief. I see Paul enough. I see his work to determine if I think he's a good manager. He knows how to, he has the skills and competencies of the job. But there are two areas they don't see. No one sees quite as much. So the third quadrant Terry Deal talks about, he often talks about it as a parental role, but it's kind of the informal roles of leadership in which it's really relational. It's how you take care of people. It's not about your HR policy that says you must do these things. It's about the things you don't have to do. It's about the pulling in someone who's really struggled in a meeting and closing your door and kind of sitting them down and saying, let me help you. Not writing them up in an HR fashion or, you know, yeah. So I think it's, it's you know, it's mentoring people. It's getting to know them. It's also, I asked this question of, of somebody who coaches me and I think people need coaches all of their careers. They need them more than ever when they're at the height of their career. So I find coaching is more valuable to me now than it was before. And I can come back to that if it's useful to you. But he, I asked him the question of you can be friends with the people who report to you. And it really threw him. He thought about it. He came back. And we had lunch about a month later. And he said, no. Um, because friendship is without power. I take you as my friend the way you are. I don't hold you accountable for your foibles. Uh, I, I am equal to you. That's what friendship is. There's equilibrium in friendship. But a supervisor, a direct report relationship is power laden. But you have, and it will often, by the way, look like friendship. You'll get lots of the benefits of friendship. There are people who work for me and they make me laugh like few others. We share stories. We know about each other's families. It looks a lot like friendship. But the difference is there is a power relationship. But he would say really effective leaders make themselves emotionally available. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use, I think about that phrase for a moment. It means that you communicate your care for people as a human being, not as an employee. You can't forget the power relationship, but it doesn't mean you can't be incredibly human. There's a, the book that I mentioned, Unleashed, talks about empathy and accountability. Like when you manage or lead people, you have to hold them accountable in a way that you don't do with friends. Like I might say, Melissa, you're being a jerk, stop talking about blah, blah, blah again, right? But but I'm not going to do that and we're going to have trust with each other and you're going to know that I'm only half joking and it's not really accountability. Nothing, there's no consequence if you ignore me as your friend. But they, but they also talk about empathy, which is a distinctly human drive, a distinctly human quality that I will know you you who work for me, as you are in the wholeness of your person. So I think that's a very powerful one. And I have people, and then the last one is what Terry Deal sometimes calls the savage village chief. And this is the, (laughs) if you think of each of these as a hat you have to put on, like sometimes I put on my managerial hat, sometimes I put on my paternal hat, sometimes I put on my storyteller hat. This is my political hat. So this is a leader's ability to navigate the politics of the world in which they operate. With you would be, you would let, you want to be in a world where there's as little of that as possible. You would be utterly naive to think there is any workplace where it doesn't happen. This can also be the gray area of ethics. Um, not all things are, in fact, easy right or wrong answers. Um, it's it's um, it's the ability to navigate politics, and if you work in higher ed, pretty political workplace, more politics than most places. I once read a study that said only the large corporate law firm is more political than the academy. God, I forget what year it was, but I want to say 2011 or so when we were going through this growth, our campus faculty were really up in arms, and I kind of you know. You have to be, be asleep at the wheel not to know who your most vociferous critics are. 
So I made a list and I invited them all to a private dinner with me. <laughs> I rented a room at a restaurant clo behind closed doors, off the record. I said, I want you to come tell me what I'm doing wrong, what you don't like. And here's my promise. I'll just listen. I'm not going to mount a defense. I just want to listen to you. And I bought pizza and beer and whatever else we were going to have, salads. And we told the waiter to close the door and not bother us till we were done, uh, that we would be fine. And then for the next two hours or more, they talked. And I took notes. And there are a couple of things that happened. One is I actually learned some things. They were not wrong on everything, obviously. Right. So these are smart people. I was doing some things. I thought, hmm, no, you might be right. I need to rethink this. Or that was not a good decision. I should have done differently. Um, so I learned some things. I didn't agree with a lot, probably even most. But even, you know, I might have agreed with 20 percent of what they said. But there was value in that 20 percent. The second thing is they stopped coming after me the same way. They, you know, they felt they felt valued and they felt listened to. Sometimes half the battle is listening to people and making them feel like it matters that you that you want to hear what they have to say what's interesting about it melissa is that that story got out someone heard me a chronicles reporter heard me mention it and they asked me about it and i told that story and then they went and chased down some of those faculty who said yeah i still think he's mostly wrong but i have to say like okay you know like and they wrote a story about it in the chronicle it was the second most read story in higher education that year and it takes courage to do what you did so I, I'm not sure how many presidents would, would have the courage to uh, invite their critics and just let them, let them talk. But it, it, it certainly, um, you know, it, it makes the case for all of the other quadrants that you're talking about and making yourself available to people and listening. So let me, let me turn, uh, pivot just a moment. And I, I wanna ask you about innovation. There's a lot of talk, right, today about how colleges and universities need to be more innovative. Certainly this new story is one of serial innovation. You've gotten a lot of recognition uh, for that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about how a leader can create uh, and nurture an innovative culture? There's some specific things you've done at SNU um, that other leaders might look to? You know, we think of innovation sometimes as a kind of stroke of lightning insight, when in fact, there is a playbook around innovation mm -hmm. and there is a taxonomy of innovation, right? So there are sustaining innovations as Clay often wrote about and disruptive innovations. And you need to first understand which of the two you're doing because they require a very different playbook. They happen in a different way. They happen in a different place. You drive them differently. So, so I think we have internalized that playbook and we could go into a lot of details, but they're, they're outlined in his theory and his writings and he's been written about a lot since then. But I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. A sustaining innovation is one typically that allows you to keep doing what you've always done, kind of play by the same rules of the game, but to do it better. So um, it's, you know, it's improvement, it's quality improvement, it's process improvement. Um, if you take a look at the way, for example, that higher ed over the last 30 years has just, you know, continued to be better through the use of technology, that's really a powerful story of success. My little college in Marlboro, Vermont, the first place I was president, um, you know, when we could finally get an internet connection and then later on get connected to the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, here's this little rural remote college that had access to the Hubble Space Telescope. Like our, our faculty who taught astronomy could rethink and make so much better what they were doing. That was an improvement. That's a sustaining innovation. You get better. But we were still playing by the same rules of the game. We're still administering higher ed very much. Our college experience very much as it always had been, just better. There's a sort of second bucket of innovation that is also about sustaining innovation. Um, it's about less about improving the quality of what you do, but playing by the same rules of the game. It's about finding efficiency in what you do. So that's the use of technology to do things better and cheaper. And an example of this would be when I first came to SNHU in 2003, students would still line up starting at five in the morning to register for classes because they needed a particular prereq to graduate on time. They had to make sure that they were there before their peers to get that class. 
and they would line up and they'd go to the gym and there'd be different tables for different departments and you'd run around with your registration form. I mean, just crazy, right? Today, it's all automated. They're doing it online. It's pre-done. Like, it's just fast and easy. And so that's innovation that is, again, sustaining. But we didn't change the rules of the game. We just got better at, at, at operationalizing them. But the innovation that people, I think, are so interested in right now is what Clay would call disruptive innovation. It's not about improving your quality and playing by the same rules. It's not about improving your efficiency and playing by the same rules. It's about reinventing the rules. It's changing the game. So if you think about, um, I'll do a couple of easy examples first. If you think about the taxi industry, a sustaining innovation might have been, I don't know, an easier way to schedule your cab or your taxi, or maybe an upgrade in the vehicle. New York City does this periodically, quality improvement. But Uber came along and blew up the game, changed the rules, whether you like them or not, they changed the rules of the game. Um, Airbnb did something similar in the world of hospitality. They changed the name of the game. Um, I think when we did our competency-based degree program, no courses, no credit hours, no instructional faculty, we changed the game. It's still a work in progress, obviously. So my point is, start with knowing what kind of innovation you're doing, and then take a look at the rules, the playbook for how to do that. So I'll give you just, again, I'll stop. I'll just two quick examples. Sustaining innovations, you always do them inside the organization, right? If you want to improve the quality of learning and teaching and learning, bring your faculty in, get them very much engaged. They should drive that. They should own it. Um, if you're going to improve um, the way that students get to register, bring in your registrar, bring in your IT people. They'll fix that, right? But if you're going to change the game, that's sustaining. If you're going to change the game, you're going to disrupt it. You almost always have to do it outside the mainstream organization. Because as Clay's research teaches us, when you're doing something so different, the whole drive of the organization will be either to incorporate it in its own image, so not really disruptive, or spit it out, get rid of it. It's like the body dealing with foreign tissue. So my job when we were doing disruptive innovation is get a bunch of people, get them away from the rest of the organization, protect them and buffer them, give them the um, invitation to break or play by new rules. And Clay would say, when you're doing sustaining innovation, you're playing to your current customers. When you're doing disruptive innovation, you got to find an underserved customer base, which is what we did. So I'm getting too wonky and into the details. If you take nothing away from the way I'm listing these examples, take away that there is a playbook. This isn't about creative bolt of lightning stuff. This is understand, become a student of how innovation works. Let me ask you in this regard, uh, what's next? We have a culture, for example, and this is very typical of higher ed, of individual heroes. People get a ton of credit for their individual work. And we're now saying to our leaders, you're actually gonna be judged on how many leaders you create. Leaders create leaders is kind of our mantra right now. So our old fashioned was like, what is your leadership pathway? What is your leadership journey, Melissa? What is your next chapter and next step? And now what we're saying is, what are you doing with all the people who work for you? Do you have development plans for each of them? How are you giving them challenges that allow them to develop their chops and their toolkit? What are the tools you bring to bear in that? And, and they're all a little bit like deer in the headlights right now, right? They're like, wait a minute, this is a new set of criteria. Uh, so we're making everyone a little bit incompetent. So now we're you know, spending a lot of time giving them the tools and helping them think about that. So right now, what we see, for example, I gave you a couple of examples of these new communities of practice. Everyone in the place wants like, hey, the boss keeps talking about communities of practice. How do you do one? I'm going to do one. They're like, oh, time out. You don't just do one. Like, you got to learn how to do it. <laughs> so we're creating tools to help them do that. And I'm really so pleased with the way typical of our culture that people are sort of really grabbing onto that and running with it. But to go back to your question, the other things we're looking at is the next iteration of community, um, com excuse me, com competency-based education. So what we're calling, we've done two iterations, CB 1.0, CB 2.0. Just last week, I put together a CB 3.0 group. And I want them to really push harder and to be more imaginative. So I'm separating them the way I talked about. So I actually am going to be the executive sponsor of that group. 
Um, and then the other big move is we're going to, we're moving much more emphatically and a lot of people are doing this. So this isn't some groundbreaking work, but we're moving much more emphatically into shorter term credentials or micro credentials that are not degrees. So they will stack to degrees, but they're really focused on high demand skills to get people back to work more quickly. So think three months and six months and nine months versus two years and four years. And to that end, we're on the verge of acquiring a company that will convert into a not-for-profit who's already doing this work. Um, and we will push uh, to expand their portfolio and learn from them. Um, but push into a lot more of the shorter. And this is probably the hot area right now in higher ed. That actually leads us right to the final question I had for you, which is our signature question. Um, we always like to end by asking folks to give us their opinion about what's next for higher ed. And you've just, you've tied that together beautifully. But I, I want to um, maybe go a little deeper. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that that so many people have been writing about lately and talking about is the impact that the pandemic has had on bifurcating the higher education uh, sector. And so you have the big schools like Southern New Hampshire getting bigger. You've got the small, the resource constrained institutions like the Marlboro colleges that where you used to be the president going to the edge yeah. and uh, falling off the cliff in some, in some cases or being, being assumed. And then you have all these schools in the middle um, trying to figure out what their future is going to look like. Um, what, you know, is there, uh, are there a few things that ought to be on the radar of, of the leaders of all of these institutions? And uh, so that's one question. And then I guess the other question, I'm just curious what you think about the future for these little resource constrained institutions. I would say that if, if I've sort of just counsel to leaders generally, there is no less demand for what colleges do. In fact, it's the opposite. While degree conferral has been flat for some time, the growth in micro-credentials and certificates and shorter term learning has exploded. So a Credential Engine, which is part of Luminar, funded by Lumina, announced today there are just short of a million different credentials now in the market. So it's chaos. But it tells you something that there is a real demand signal out there. And everything we know about the recession and what people are saying, what Americans are saying, is they want skills, skills-based education. They want it in shorter term because they feel urgency. They're unemployed. They need to get back to work. And they need it to be more affordable. So a leader that's willing to sort of say, I'll tackle that fight, I'll, I'll fight that fight, at least now has a new focus and a sense of how they need to proceed. If you're a small school in New England that's doing traditional residential, um, it's almost sort of unethical to keep taking donor money at this point because there are fewer students, that pie shrinking. You gotta find where the demand signals are, right? You gotta be in the place where, where students need you. And then it's your willingness to rethink what you do in order to get the, remember, jobs to be done, the job that they need you to do. So, you know, do your research under, you know, come to a thesis about where the opportunity and the demand signals are, and then decide how much willingness you are to do the unbelievably hard work of reinventing your organization to meet that demand signal. Um, because it, because our model is broken. I mean, deeply broken. And, you know, if we focus, we didn't really spend much time talking about equity, but if we just talk about equity, one of the things that the pandemic shone a very harsh light on is the degree to which inequities are baked into higher education in every way. And what we know right now is that FAFSA completions among seniors in high school, among low-income students, is dramatically down. So that group that's being left behind, it's going to get bigger next year. The number of low-income students and students of color coming onto our campuses will be significantly reduced because of the pandemic. Um, that's a crisis mode because you can't you can't make that ground up very easily. Um, that you know, we know, for example, on the back end of what we do that if we're producing graduates into job, low paying jobs, 50% um, of them will still be 
underemployed 10 years later, excuse me, five years later, 70% of that group will still be underemployed five years after that. So, so we're, it's incumbent upon us, almost ethically, I, I would frame it through the lens of ethics, to make sure that we are serving students that need us so desperately and that we are giving them degrees that genuinely unlock opportunity for them. Leaders have to take into account those big existential questions. What they are not going to do is be successful by simply trying to find more cuts in their budget or doing it the way they always have been doing it because that's already broken, that's gone, right? Unless you're talking about the elite institutions when they're, they're gonna be fine. If you're talking about the 50 flagship state universities, they're probably gonna generally speaking be fine but everything else is on the table and we, we need a dramatic change in high road. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all the work you are doing, uh, both at Southern New Hampshire, but, but also uh, beyond. It's a great note to end on, but I'm actually very optimistic. I think sometimes things have to be pretty broken for them to get reinvented. I have a little statue of Shiva on my, uh, on my uh, side table in my office and, People often think of Shiva as the goddess uh, of god of destruction. Shiva actually is about renewal. Shiva dances inside a circle. So maybe we have to go through this period in order to get back to the kind of higher education that allowed a first-generation immigrant kid like me, with very you know unpromising future, um, to to sort of forge a better life. Um, and my two daughters uh, would tell you that it made all the difference. Right? They lead a life today that their grandparents with their eighth grade educations could scarcely believe. And I'll know we've got it right when that's as true for a young Dominican kid who's just come to the US or a student of color who's lived through multi-generational poverty um, in you know wherever, um, that's what we have to get back to. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. In next week's episode, we catch up with Lori Polito, CEO of Ease Learning. We spoke with Lori on the front end of the pandemic several months ago, and she gave us some wonderfully valuable insights about where online learning was headed. This interview resonated deeply with our listeners and in fact was the most highly listened to episode during season one. Given the continuing rapid pace of change, and continued uncertainty about campus plans for the fall, we circled back to Lori to get her current take on the state of online learning. You will not want to miss out on this conversation and to hear her current thoughts about where online learning is now headed and what colleges and universities need to do to stay ahead of the curve. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well. <music>